Have you ever been frustrated when your own willpower to do something that you know to be good and true and important, uh, when, when, your will, when your willpower fails you? Um, I know that the feelings of guilt, shame, frustration, and impotence can be so demoralizing and crippling. I know that from personal experience. It would be impossible for me to count the number of times I've been in that situation where I felt those things because I failed to do the things that I know to be good and true. The things I know I needed to do, but also wanted to do even. So for those that I haven't gotten to meet yet, uh, my name is Andy. I'm here on staff at The Bridge. And I'm just grateful and excited to be able to continue uh, our fall series in the Gospel of Mark, where we're focusing on the themes of the crown and cross of Christ. We've been reading through uh, the, the 16 chapters of Mark by seeing the kingship of Jesus on display in Mark chapters 1 through 8, the first half. And as we get into the spring uh, next year, 2021, we'll start seeing the suffering savior theme in this latter half, chapters 9 through 16. So just to quickly summarize the chapters that we've covered already and the elements of Jesus' kingship that we've seen in those chapters. Um, in chapter one, we saw that Jesus is king of kings. Chapter two, that Jesus is the healer and savior king. Chapter three, Jesus is the rest giving king through Sabbath. Chapter four, Jesus is a trustworthy king in the storms of life. Uh, chapter five, Jesus is a timely king. And in chapter six, last week, uh, we saw that Jesus is a benevolent king. So today in chapter seven, uh, my hope is that Jesus will show us and reveal to, to each of us how he is the king of our hearts. Um, my hope is that he'll reveal how the human heart is hopelessly far from God without him, which will then in turn point us to see how Jesus and nothing or no one else brings our hearts close to God. So let me pray for us and we'll get into it. Father God, um, I just thank you for Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he is the king of everything, uh, that he is the sovereign ruler um, who we can trust, who we can turn to, who we can find uh, truth and love from. God, I thank you that, uh, that we can just find the hope and the joy and the comfort, the purpose, the peace that we all crave in you. And I thank you for your word where we can know these things in beautiful depth of truth. So I just pray that this morning that, um, that your truth, your loving truth would be uh, made so evident and undeniably clear uh, in spite of me or because of me, whichever way it needs to be, God. Uh, so I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So... Uh, as I said, we've covered already Mark chapters 1 through 6, and basically in those six chapters, Jesus has been performing miracles and giving teaching all around the region of Israel called Galilee. And so all these spectacular deeds and his profound teachings have caused a great stir throughout society. And so many people are intrigued and they're following him and they're interested in what he has to say and do. But at the same time, there are others, unsurprisingly in a way, there are others who are very skeptical. And so of, of those skeptics, those cynics, two groups that we see the most of throughout the four Gospels, and in this passage in particular, are called the Pharisees and the Scribes. So I'm going to read 
uh, from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, and we'll see that at play. So uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 13, it should be on the screen, or you can turn to it for yourself if you'd like. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples, meaning Jesus, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So what we see here is the Pharisees and scribes, and they come to Jesus with this accusation. And just of some quick background, the Pharisees were essentially this camp of Judaism, the, in, sort of in a way that we see denominations in Christianity today. And they had a lot of power um, that they used to govern everyday people. As you can see, they were kind of stewards of the elders' traditions. Um, and But what ended up happening a lot of the time is they were essentially a very coercive and intimidating uh, authoritarian force on the people of Israel. And in a similar way, the scribes were experts of the old, the entire Old Testament law. And so they were responsible for not only teaching the law, but also enforcing it as judges amongst God's people. And so in a, in a, if, if it helps to think of it this way in more modern terms, I, I think of the scribes as kind of like tenured PhDs on the subject of God and his laws. So in this passage, we see that these leaders who are the authority at the time on the subject of God, they come and confront Jesus and criticize his students for violating the traditions of Israel's elders. Notice they don't say for violating God's law, they say violating the tradition of Israel's elders. These were the things that were actually providing the practical governing principles for everyday life. And so not only that, but not in the actual wording, but what the implications are, when, when the Pharisees and scribes come and criticize Jesus' students, what they're actually doing is criticizing Jesus himself for being an incompetent and irreverent teacher, literally failing at the job that he was supposed to do. But and what we see is Jesus responds very immediately and very comprehensively to these accusations. And he makes an accusation of his own. So I'm gonna read again, Mark seven, uh, verses six to seven. He says, you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
And so Jesus is calling them hypocrites, saying that their hearts are far from God, that they're just giving lip service. And those sorts of criticisms are not the sort of criticisms you would expect from gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that we are so accustomed to thinking about. So why would Jesus make such scathing and harsh critiques of these religious leaders who held so much influence and power and respect? And Jesus really gives pretty straightforward his reasons for why in verses 8, 9, and 13. In verses 8, he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verses 9, very similarly, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And in verse 13, Jesus says, accuses them of making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So these three things, which are very similar, if not identical accusations, which he essentially repeats three times, these are very serious accusations for him to make, especially against those whose very role amongst the people of God was to preserve and teach God's law. He was accusing them of essentially getting rid of God's law and replacing it with their own. So Jesus really was not going to stand there and ignore or permit such misleading and harmful conduct by the Pharisees and scribes to continue. And so first and foremost, what's important to realize is as a loving king, part of Jesus's perfect kingly love is, is his unwillingness to stand by as God's living truth is distorted and thus becomes harmful to God's people. So at the very core of this exchange between the Pharisees, scribes, and Jesus is a chief concern. And we actually get an insight into that when Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah in verse 6. Um, Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Don't, 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 for, don't fail to catch that. Their heart is far from me. And so it's, it was the elders' infinite number of interpretations of God's law and the legalistic... Sorry, it wasn't the elders' infinite number of interpretations of God's law or the legalist enforcement of those interpretations that were the central issue for Jesus. The fundamental underlying issue concerning Jesus, who is our God in the flesh, is the condition and distance of the human heart from God. I'm going to say that again. The fundamental underlying issue concerning Jesus, our God in the flesh, is the condition and distance of the human heart from God. See, the thing is, the elders had made so many interpretations of God's law that everyday Israelites had to worry too much about being punished for violating one of the thousands of man-made interpretations rather than actually worrying about what matters most, which was the consequences of violating one of God's laws. And it's not to say that any one of the interpretations was wrong, but it was the excessive number of interpretations that inevitably drew everyone's focus onto their own performance of measurable man-made rules. I think, I think we all are kind of familiar with the phenomenon that when we as people are given a, a long list of do's and don'ts, it's very easy to get caught up in trying to do every single thing right. And then what happens is because we're finite, we forget in the first place why we follow any, any of these rules to begin with, why the rules matter. But not only that, not only does do these excessive interpretations draw away the focus, but even more concerningly, 
these distorted teachings put salvation in our own hands. See, if, if closeness to God was purely dictated by how successful we are at doing all the right things and never doing the wrong things, we all know that we would all be far from God for eternity. Even the strongest of human wills is not able to overcome the fickleness and frailty of the human heart. And Jesus knew, knew this, and he knew how much the elders' traditions, these, these doctrines, these interpretations, were leading all of God's people into a very fatal, ultimately fatal place of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. So what we get after this initial exchange is Jesus giving greater detail of what a heart far from God really looks like. So I'm going to quickly read Mark 7 verses 14 to 23. This is immediately after Jesus is talking with the Pharisees and scribes. And he, Jesus, called, to the, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So a short but vital truth that we find in this laundry list of things that Jesus and this thing that Jesus says to the people, his disciples as well, is verse 21. He says, from within, out of the heart of man. Again, notice the heart comes up again a second time here. So the observable wrongs and malicious attitudes that Jesus lists in this passage, which we see in ourselves and people around us all the time, those are not the actual problem. They are merely symptoms of the heart, which is far from God. See, what Jesus is doing is he's speaking directly about our fallen, broken sin nature that we have inherited as descendants of Adam and Eve because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God at the very beginning of human existence, a vast divide formed between our Holy Creator and us, his selfish, tainted creation. And what humanity has shown time and time again is that we are not able to bridge that divide with rules that we make up or perfect adherence to those rules, not even perfect adherence to God's law itself. See, even if we are 99% successful over the course of our lives at upholding God's given laws, the 600-something laws that you find in the Bible, we are still short of perfect holiness, and thus we all have the stain of sin on our souls. So I have to give the bad news before the good in a way. All our hearts are tragically far from God. So I think what that really does is beg the question, how do our hearts get close to God? And unfortunately, in this passage, Jesus doesn't give a direct answer, but thankfully we have all of scripture that gives us a, a whole counsel on this topic. 
I'm going to read from Hebrews 10.22. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And Ephesians 3.17a says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Through faith. See, by faith, our hearts are not just drawn close to God, but God lives within our hearts. And that is huge. That is huge for uh, considering that God once only dwelled in the holiest place in the Jewish temple, a single place on the entire planet. He chose that one place as his dwelling place because everything else was unholy. But now, through faith, he dwells in the hearts of all those who place their faith in Jesus as the risen, victorious Son of God. See, true faith is not just a, a, a philosophical agreement with Jesus' teachings or a rational understanding that he was a real person and he walked the earth. Romans 10, 9-11, the Apostle Paul gives us some really powerful truth. It says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's powerful. So true faith and belief in Jesus what it really is, is it's not just cognitive, it's not just rational, philosophical. It is a constant, profound trust that Jesus' death and resurrection afford us eternal freedom from our hearts that once were defiled and enslaved us to sin. I'll say that again. True faith and belief in Jesus is a constant, profound trust that his death and resurrection afford us eternal freedom from our hearts that once defiled and enslaved us to sin. So a heart, a heart close to God is one in which Christ dwells within because of a deep and genuine believing faith in Christ as the Savior King. So if you have not experienced that heart deep faith that Jesus died then raised to life in victory over your chains and over the divide that placed you impossibly far from God, my prayer has been, is, and will be that you soften, that God will soften your heart and mind to receive his love through Jesus and come to that heart deep faith in Jesus as your savior and king. Now, alternatively, you, you may already believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. So an equally important question then is, how do our hearts stay close to God? You know, the initial, the initial issue of getting close to God, maybe that's taken care of. But how do, how do they stay close to God? Because I bet decent money that even the Pharisees and the scribes had pure hearts for God at one point or another in, in their lifetimes. And yet we see that their hearts strayed so far, they became so dependent on themselves, on, on, their own, on their own traditions. So we too have to be ever watchful, very vigilant, that we do not become like the Pharisees and the scribes. We can't let our faith be reduced to simply striving to fulfill a laundry list of do's and don'ts. Self-sufficiency on our own willpower and discipline will destroy us. 
as I've said, I felt my own impotence so many times, and it's led me to such dark places. Instead, we have to daily rely on the strength of Christ dwelling within our hearts. Praise God. It's through constant immersion in the Bible, which is the living word of God. And it's through fellowship with the family of faith, where we receive the Holy Spirit's invigorating words of life, love, and truth. And I say that because the Holy Spirit is the, is the source and the, 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 the conduit through which the love and the truth uh, comes through the, through the Bible and through the, through the body of Christ. So all that leads me to say is praise God that he gives us the solution to the problem that we could never hope to resolve on our own. Praise God that Jesus is the king of our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, I am overwhelmed, just overwhelmed knowing that that you have made a way, that you, um, you are the Holy One who dwells within our hearts because of faith in Christ, because of what your Son has done. Uh, God, I just pray that right now for, for myself, for anyone who feels numb to that truth, God, that you would soften us again, that you would let us feel the power and the beauty uh, that comes with with that reality, the reality that Jesus has bridged the divide, that he now dwells within our hearts, that we can know you and be close to you and be loved by you because of his death on a cross. And not only his death on a cross, thank goodness, but his resurrection from that death, God, to be the victor, the conqueror over sin and death itself. God, I pray that you would just be letting this reality be the song which which we just live by every day, God, that you would not let us forget, that we would remind each other that you would use your word to speak it to to us as we need it, God, more than we need it. We do need it every every day of our lives. So, I, God, I just thank you that that you are the one that has given us the solution to the problem that we find ourselves stuck in it time and time again. God, help us not grow self-sufficient and self-righteous. Let us lean upon you, lean upon our brothers and sisters, and let us bring that love. Uh, into the world that you have put before us. So I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Grateful for you guys. Hope to see you soon. Bye.